0: On the 16th of April 1916, a 70-year-old American inventor named Louis Enrich announced that he'd discovered a cheap additive that, when added to ordinary tap water, would turn it into a substitute for fuel. At the time, World War I was raging in Europe and petrol was expensive, and Enrich claimed that his new additive would bring the price per gallon down to one penny. So as you can imagine, that certainly got everyone's attention. Henrik arranged to give a demonstration to a crowd of reporters. First he asked the reporters to check that there was no supplementary tank in the car he had brought. He had one of the reporters bring him a bucket full of ordinary tap water, to which he added a small amount of greenish liquid, stirred it up, filled the petrol tank with it and started the car engine. He then invited everyone to test this miraculous mixture in their own vehicles. They did and it worked. Enrich's demonstrations were so convincing that even the world famous car maker Henry Ford offered him millions to buy the rights for his additive. But actually, Enrich had merely discovered something others were working on that if you add some chemicals called acetone or acetylene to water, it will indeed run an engine, but only for a while before it destroys it. Of course, before anyone found out that's what he was peddling, Enrich had managed to convince several famous American business men of the time to give him substantial amounts of money for his worthless invention. Put simply, Enrich was a scam artist. In fact, it was a scam he found so profitable that he went on to do it again, the next time saying he had invented a device for extracting gasoline from peat. When he was eventually charged with fraud, the case reached the courts and one inventor who had investigated it testified, we traced the line from which the gasoline issued, only to find that it led not to the machine which held the peat, but to a gasoline-filled tank hidden behind the wall. One invention that was all smoke and mirrors, the other, while it looked convincing, ultimately destroyed that which it was supposed to power. In our reading from the Gospel of John, we hear the story of Jesus attending a wedding feast, where something extraordinary took place, no smoke and mirrors, only power displayed, attested to by the master of the banquet. In Jesus' day wedding celebrations could last for over a week, and all the food, the drink and the entertainment for all the guests was provided by the bridegroom. Now, it might be that family, friends and neighbours would contribute, but ultimately it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to ensure that there was a sufficiency. And it would be of great public embarrassment to the family if there was not enough to last throughout the time of the celebration. And that was exactly what happened at the wedding feast that Jesus was attending with his disciples as invited guests. There was not enough. The wine was gone. But also there was his mother Mary, who saw what had happened, and so she speaks to Jesus of the problem that has arisen. Now wine in Jesus' day was an important staple beverage, safer to drink than water. In fact, often added to water to kill off the lurking bacteria. So the fact that there is no more wine isn't just a minor inconvenience. This is a big deal. The wine has run out. And that's often when we turn to God, isn't it? When we run out of something. When we run out of strength. When we run out of options. When we realise that we need help just to keep going. The good news of the Gospel is that God meets us where we have run out that God meets us in our place of need. At the end of human resource, when we have nothing left to give, nothing left to do in a situation, there are available to us the resources of God. Now, Mary doesn't explicitly ask Jesus to do something about the wine shortage. And indeed, to our ears, Jesus' response seems quite dismissive. We tend to hear it as a kind of nothing-to-do-with-me statement, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. But Jesus was using a common title of respect when he addresses Mary as woman. And from the cross he addresses her the same way. Woman, behold your son. And it certainly doesn't appear as if Mary is offended by his response. She merely responds by telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. An expression of confidence and trust in Jesus' ability to do something about the need that has arisen. Do whatever he tells you. In many ways, these words sum up what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, we hear Jesus wants his followers to love God and neighbour. And in Luke's Gospel, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he gives us some ideas about what that means in practice. And again in Matthew's Gospel, when we hear about the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those in need, the sick, the imprisoned, and how we should respond. And even though Jesus seems to rebuff his mother's request by saying, My hour has not yet come, nevertheless he goes ahead and takes care of the problem. The hour and its coming in John's Gospel is often spoken of as a climax towards which Jesus' story is heading, his death in Jerusalem. When the hour finally does come, it's Jesus himself who pronounces it as he finishes his work on earth. But here in this story, he's just about to begin his ministry, and his actions at this wedding banquet, we are told, is a sign of who he is, The real master of the banquet and this miracle is in part about generosity the generous giving love of god but i wonder if you ever noticed this about this miracle this sign jesus does not do it alone he involves others others are a part of what he does And I think for us that's always important to remember because we too are called to be part of what he does. Jesus tells the servants to fill six stone jars with water and to take a sample to the chief steward. Jars are made of stone because stone was said to keep the water in them safe. It was used for ritual washing of hands and vessels. It was to keep it free from impurity. In each jar held between 80 and 100 litres, 20 to 30 gallons, or three large wheelie bins, if you'd like to imagine that. So this wouldn't have taken minutes to do in a time when there was no tap to turn on, but rather the water had to be drawn from a well, 120 to 180 gallons of it. So it was a whole lot of water that became a whole lot of wine. It's been estimated that it would have been between 800 and 900 bottles. But it's not just about quantity. It's about quality. Serving the best of everything at the beginning of a celebration was a normal thing to do. But when the wine Jesus provided was served, everyone was amazed for it was far better than what was served at the beginning. And so the comment, you have saved the best till now, was heard. The overabundance of what Jesus provides set the scene for further examples of generosity that reveal the kingdom of God as his ministry gathers peace. It tells us too that with the kingdom of God the best is still to come. And John in his gospel is telling us that the whole point of the miracle is not so much about what was done but who did it. It's a sign that points to who Jesus is. The disciples don't get caught up in the question of how did he do that. The disciples experience God at work through Jesus and it deepens their understanding of who Jesus is. The disciples are learning to answer the question, why did this happen? And when it comes down to it, I suppose you could say that it tells us that God is in the business of taking ordinary things and ordinary people and transforming them. Taking what they bring to him and doing something amazing. There's so much in this story we could focus on and unpack, and I've touched on a few, but I simply want to ask a question. What might Jesus be able to do with what we bring to him? Often we will never know what has been done with what we bring and give to God. We don't get to see and really that's okay. After all, how many people at the wedding really knew what miracle had taken place? How many of us know what results our actions and words have? How a life was changed because we prayed or added our name to a petition asking for the release of a political prisoner, or donated to a charity that was helping struggling families, how a child's life became something they could never have dreamed of because they received an education or even a life-saving meal. We know that the world is divided into those who have and those who have not. The division is striking, yet if we are not careful, We can become numbed to it. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians offers a simple truth. We may have different gifts, but they're all of equal worth. And we are asked to use these gifts not only for ourselves or for those we love, but for the good of all humanity. What we bring to God, what we do in his name, can change the course of events for others without us knowing And for them, it's a miracle. Every action, every offering counts, however ordinary it seems in our lives. And it will bear fruit of some sort somewhere. And maybe, just maybe, after a week as intense and highly politicised as the last, that is the tonic we really need to inspire us, to keep bringing what we have to God, to see and be part of the transformation that God can bring about. I want to close with these words of reflection called Water into Wine. Jesus brought the wine of God's love into the world. Everywhere he went, the old was made new. For the couple at Cana, he changed water into wine. For the widow at Nain, he changed tears into joy. For Zacchaeus he changed selfishness into love, for the thief on Calvary he changed despair into hope, and on Easter morning he changed death into life.